0: Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprint. Roy Green and I remember the 9-11 terror attacks. I'm also talking about homelessness in Hamilton, a new health directory for black residents. Premier Ford tries to turn the page. The Conservatives wrap up in Quebec. And why do we love to hate Nickelback? The JMH podcast begins now.
1: This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Hard to believe that 22 years ago today, boy, time flies. The September 11th terror attacks in the United States. Thousands of innocent Americans and Canadians killed by terrorists who flew two planes in the World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, a field in Pennsylvania, and the ripple effect, the impact of 9-11 still to this day being felt. Uh, One guy who was in this studio... On 9-11 22 years ago was Roy Green, now host of The Roy Green Show, which airs weekdays two to five here on 900 CHML and across the country. Roy, welcome to Good Morning Hamilton. How are you?
2: Hey, Rick. I'm good. How are you doing?
0: I'm okay. But uh, boy, oh boy, 22 years ago, in yeah. about an hour and a little bit from now, our world changed.
2: You know, I was on the way from my office to the studio with a show prepared. We were going to do something on education in Ontario. And as I turned the corner toward the studio, I heard someone shout, there's been a terrible accident. A plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York City. That's what we thought. We thought it was an accident. And so I went to the studio and I started the show on the education system. I had made clear that we would follow the situation in New York City. And of course, within literally minutes, another plane hit the World Trade Center and we knew it wasn't an accident and the world changed. The world changed, and we were desperately trying to find out what was going on at that particular time, because we didn't really have a a line to New York City, and everybody else was trying to get the information as well. So uh, I called Peter Jennings, who uh, I knew very well, and was the anchor of World News Tonight at ABC Television. And Peter put me in touch with the news and program directors at WABC Radio, and they then, Rick, you may recall this, became our eyes... On what was happening that day mm-hmm. in New York City, they made their reporters available to us on the ground, and it was some of the reports I remember so clearly, but they're too graphic to repeat here. Uh, I just don't want to do it uh but let's just say they were very, very um, yeah, the word is graphic yeah and and the whole day, Rick just developed right you you mentioned flight ninety three where the passengers uh took on the terrorist and crashed the plane into that field in Pennsylvania. I spoke with the father of a young woman who was a passenger on that plane, who was talking to her mom on a mobile phone on the plane as it was being hijacked and said to her mother at the very end, Mom, I have to go now. There's something taking place. She wanted, according to her dad, she wanted to spare her mother hearing what was going to happen. There was gander. There was so much going on. The world changed that day.
0: As you're sitting in this studio, 22 years yep. ago, what was yep. the most memorable takeaway from that broadcasting experience?
2: Okay, um, one of the WABC reporters, who was very close to the World Trade Center, said to me, "My fear is not of this building crashing down. There's nobody. It was going to happen. Right? Mm-hmm. This was before, obviously before." He said, My fear is there's so much dust and I can't see up, but there are people build, jumping off this building, off the top floors. And my greatest fear is I'm going to be hit by somebody who's jumped off the building. Wow. I will never, ever forget that, that report. Uh, or the reporter who delivered it. We give me, give me chills today. Yeah,
0: I'm I'm getting them right now. We we had the opportunity a year later to do a couple of shows. You were hosting and did a phenomenal job of doing so on that one-year anniversary of the 9/11 terror attacks. And I'll I'll just say this: my most. I went to Yankee Stadium. I went up the the Empire State Building, and I remember you wagging your finger at me, saying, "Are you sure <laughs> you want to do so?" But I did. Yeah. My biggest takeaway from New York was and I remember taking the cab ride with you to ground zero and just seeing the expanse of yeah. what had happened there and how big yeah. this was, both physically what we were seeing, but emotionally and psychological, what we were kind of both feeling. That was my biggest takeaway. I know you have We've got a couple of minutes and you can you can tell the story about St. Paul's Chapel and how how unbelievably sad it was to be there.
2: Yeah, I just uh, tweeted on that Rick at, at the Roy Green show, and uh, that that cabbie would not take us down to the yeah. World Trade Center site. Yeah, he was an immigrant, and he said, "I still can't go there." So he let us out a block away, and it was the expanse of where the buildings stood, and it looked like a construction site. Mm-hmm. That's all it looked like because they were obviously going to build the uh, the the tribute. But the the fence around St. Paul's Chapel. And it was amazing. It was across the street, and it hadn't been damaged at all. Yeah. Um, so this fence, as you well remember, had thousands of pieces of just memorabilia and tributes to the people who had died one year earlier. And I will never forget, never forget, Rick, there was one piece of, small piece of cardboard tied to the fence, and in a child's writing it read, I love you, Daddy. That just That just staggered me. I thought about it this morning. First thing that came to mind, I will never forget that.
0: No, and it will, it will never be forgotten, and uh, our hearts and our prayers go to uh, the victim's families. still 22 yep. years later. Roy, yep. thank you for your time, and uh, we'll chat with you uh, down the road.
2: All right. Thank you, Rick.
0: Roy Green, the host of The Roy Green Show. You can hear it Saturdays and Sundays, 2 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon. Phenomenal show. Had a great couple of shows this past weekend as well.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: City councillors last week had their first look at a new winter response strategy as it relates to Hamilton's homelessness crisis. And this plan involves spending $1.5 million this coming winter to create more supports for those living outside. It includes uh, overnight drop-in spaces, extended hours at certain rec centers, as they operate as warming centers, it's also going to use an HSR bus as an overnight warming space. All, uh, all key ideas, all key components of this plan.
3: We're trying to both meet the needs as best as we can, knowing it's not an ideal situation, but also balancing what's practical and what we might be able to feasibly have happen. That is
0: Hamilton's Director of Housing, Michelle Barrett, saying that this plan isn't a solution, but just a response to the crisis that we're seeing right now. Jen Bonner is the executive director of The Hub, a key player in trying to help those who are unhoused in this community. Jen, good morning. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton. Good morning. Is is what the city is planning to do, is it a small step? Is it a big step forward? Is it somewhere in the middle?
3: I think it's somewhere in the middle. I think um, there's a couple of key things in this plan that uh, could make things a little more consistent. Um Yeah.
0: What what do you like about this?
3: Um, I like the idea that we are offering up, uh, it, opening it up to more service providers because we're offering up some money on the daytime drop-in as well, uh, which will make it a little bit easier for larger service providers to be able to uh, to staff and to work that into their business models.
0: So why is that? Why is that daytime component important? Is that uh, just allowing? those who do not have a place to stay a little bit of a breather during the day especially in the cold winter months
3: yeah as we saw last year um the the winter warm-up plan was really just my overnight center uh there was a couple of things at the library places like that um but of course it's difficult for everyone to access the downtown core Um, And also, uh, you know, obviously on holidays and things like that, public libraries and rec centers were closed. Uh, This plan opens that up a little bit more. uh, So it is definitely better. And of course, the key component to this is, um, as you'll remember from my conversation with you last year, removing that minus 15 uh, from the equation altogether.
0: And so where are we at that? And for those who don't know, when it is minus 15, the city of Hamilton implements its cold weather strategy and offers warming centers. Where are we with that number?
3: It's actually been taken out. Uh, It is uncoupled from the plan. Uh, So essentially, the winter warm up plan would run from December 1st until March 31st. Um, And that is, uh, you know, been a recommendation of the hubs and and other service providers and healthcare professionals for the last two years. Uh, So the city has finally taken that out of the plan.
0: And so that's regardless of the winter. It could be plus two on December 18th, and it's still going to be in effect.
3: Yeah, I think there's been some recognition that there is other factors that play into that, right? Precipitation, wind yes. chill, uh, those sort of things. And so uh, they definitely have made some progress in removing that altogether and just providing supports for people, uh, regardless of the temperature, throughout those colder months.
0: Jen Bonner is the executive director of The Hub, one of the key players in providing a place to stay for those who are unhoused. You can find it on Vine Street. And when it comes to The Hub, how are things going? How, how was the winter? How was the spring? How was the summer?
3: Yeah, it's been very busy, obviously. Numbers are up consistently. Uh, Shelters are already full. Um, And then, you know, I think we I think I said, you know, it's it's the perfect storm for violence to erupt in our community right now with a drug poisoning crisis. We've got a housing crisis. We've got, you know, newcomers arriving daily. Um, There's just a groundswell of hate. Um, And it's it's a broken community at the moment. Um, And I think uh, some of the work in this plan will allow us to sort of mend some of those, hopefully. But uh, it certainly doesn't go far enough. I think there needs to be some additional services across the city to allow for folks because this isn't just a downtown core problem. This is an everywhere problem. Um, But for the hub, we've just been super busy, Uh, really, really busy.
0: (laughs) We got about a minute. What else would you like to see?
3: Um, I think for me, I would like to see... Uh, some additional beds and services for men. There's a couple of uh, winter warming um, and provisions in here for uh, unhoused women um, and LGBTQ, which is absolutely 100% needed, uh, but we are underserving men in this community, and I think we need to do more.
0: Definitely so. Jen, thank you for your time this morning. Best of luck going forward volunteering cheering for The Hub.
3: I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a great day.
0: You too. That's Jen Bonner, the Executive Director of The Hub, doing a fantastic job of trying to address a serious crisis, as as you heard, it is getting busier and with the cost of living now and more and more people seeking shelter. Sadly, the number of people using Hamilton's Strain Emergency Shelters right now is just under 2,000 people this summer. We definitely got to get a better handle on the homelessness crisis in this community.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: There's a new directory of health care providers that is trying to improve access to doctors and medical professionals for the black community. I found this very interesting. Dr. Nick White is the co-founder of the Black Health Professionals Network and joins us now on GMH. Dr. White, good morning. How are you?
4: Hi, good morning, I'm good, how are you? I'm good,
0: thanks for joining us this morning. Let's let's talk about this directory. What does it look like, what does it encompass?
4: Great, well, uh, thanks for having me. So to share a little bit about the directory, it is a directory of Black healthcare professionals in Ontario. So that allows people to go online and search based on location, as well as the type of professional that you are looking for. Other uh, search criteria include language, gender, et cetera. And the goal of this is to allow people to be able to locate. Uh, black providers, which is something that had been a challenge uh, previously because there wasn't an easy way to find uh, someone based on their, their uh, ethnic background. And this is something that had been asked for by the Black community because they felt that they had uh, were more likely to, to participate in their own care and work closer with a provider who came from a similar background.
0: And so where did you hear that? Is that anecdotal evidence? It would, Was a survey conducted? How did you get that information?
4: So the combination of just first, it started off with just my own experience as a physician. I would have patients come in and they would be really excited to have a Black doctor. And that was something they were telling me was important to them. But, you know, also we did some community surveys and we conducted some data from the Black community itself and they said that that was something that they've struggled with for a long time. And so uh, there was good support for that, as well as, you know, there's good data in the U.S. that shows that uh, health care outcomes improve when a provider is of a similar background, culture, or racial identity. Very interesting. Patient.
0: So what services are available through the Black Health Professionals
4: Network? So we are a network of the professionals themselves. And for professionals, we help with things like networking, mentoring, and business advisory services. For the public, the directory is is free, and it's it's an opportunity to locate providers, to reach out to them directly, and find out if you can utilize their services.
0: When it comes to this database, is it online only? How can someone access it?
4: So, great. So it, it is accessible through our website, bhpn.ca. And there's a link to the directory, so it is available exclusively online at the moment. We are considering in the future maybe a, a phone-based application.
0: And what kind of response have you received thus far?
4: So thus far, it's been good. There's a combination of uh, providers who really want to be featured on a directory like this, and there are also providers who who do not want to be featured, and that's because maybe their practice is full or they're not recruiting patients. Uh, but overall, there's been a lot of interest in in a directory and. My hope is that this could be a model for a greater directory that allows for more providers, irregardless of their uh, racial background, to be featured and for people to be able to find them more easily.
0: And, And do you have a timeline for that? And why do you think that's important?
4: Yeah, well, I mean, our project, we have funding until the end of next year. So we are currently continuing this and the hope is to continue beyond that. But I do think that Canadians struggle to find providers, and it's not just important for Black Canadians, but other groups as well might benefit from having a provider who either speaks their language or maybe has a similar cultural background or religious background. And so the more information you can find about a provider, I think the better you're going to find the quality of that patient-physician relationship is. And that should hopefully improve the overall quality of the healthcare system.
0: I know there is a family doctor shortage in this community and others. Do you, do you think this will kind of help address that uh, to a certain extent?
4: Yeah, I hope it will. We are finding some of the younger family doctors who are just getting started are interested in sharing their availability and recruiting patients. But generally, it's, it's tough because many family doctors fill up very quickly and we probably do not have enough in this province. And so... We need to think about as many tools as we can to increase access to primary care especially. And so a directory might be a good option for for us to look at. And that's what we're hoping that this can serve as a case study for improving the directories that we utilize for our, our physicians and healthcare pr- practitioners in this province.
0: We have a couple more minutes with Dr. Nick White, co founder of the Black Health Professionals Network. Find it online at bhpn.ca. There is a degree of, of distrust of the healthcare system when it comes to racialized communities. Has that improved over the past few years, or are we still at a, a stumbling block or a little bit of a brick
4: wall? Well, we saw that during COVID, there was uh, certainly some disparities in terms of the communities affected and the outcomes with COVID. And part of that could be, and again, this is speculation, it could be that maybe there was a mistrust in some of those communities. So um, by allowing, for instance, the black community to to utilize black providers, we hope that there would be an increase in trust and following the recommendations that they receive so public health is a good, good application for this. Um, it's too early to say if things have improved. The data always lags a little bit behind, but the hope is that we can continue to have initiatives like this so we can try different approaches to improving access and trust in the healthcare system because it'll make a big difference for all of us if uh Canadians feel that they can take the advice, listen to it, and follow the recommendations of their providers.
0: I'd love to touch base sometime down the road to get an update from you, Dr. White. Appreciate your time this morning. Have a great day.
4: Thank you. You too.
0: That is Dr. Nick White. He's the co-founder, managing director of the Black Health Professionals Network, online at bhpn.ca. And I think a phenomenal idea. If we're talking about improving the health of individuals in this community, this is a great idea to perhaps serve an underserved part of the community
1: you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml
0: many believe on friday premier doug ford attempted to change the channel on his government's greenbelt land swap scandal
1: it's not up to the teachers it's not up to the school boards to indoctrinate our kids to hear what the kids are doing and not the school boards I can't even figure out what school boards do nowadays, by the
0: way. So, again, that was back on Friday. Premier Ford scolding school boards and educators that withhold information from parents about their children's sexual and gender identity. Sexuality and gender identity, I should say. Amr Khan is a national online journalist with Global News covering this story and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Amar, good morning. How are you today?
5: Hi, Rick. I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm good. Take us back to Friday and the Premier's... Uh, uh, You know, sentiment to school boards and and educators.
5: Yeah, I think it's one that I've spoken with many educators. Uh, They feel pretty disrespected by it because, one, um, you know, the premier and his minister of education, they do kind of set the mandate for um, school boards across. So if they wanted to make a change, they could. Um, And this is a change that has been made. But it's a really controversial subject. Uh, Many folks there uh, believing that this is a changing of the the channel in many ways, trying to get focus off the Greenbelt. We've seen the premier over the course of several weeks now um, be at different press conferences, um, some for mental health, uh, other for, you know, trade uh, for education, Uh, trying to get focus away from the Greenbelt, even at times getting frustrated with reporters saying that, you know, you're still on this, you're still on this. And it is the, the, the topic for many folks, because we've now had two reports come back to back um, with some really serious uh, language and then saying that uh, the government was asleep at the wheel when all of this happened. So uh, yeah, the, uh, I spoke to a number of sources too, and just They they really felt like this was a ramping up of the language uh, and trying to pick a topic that is more controversial, one that many people will have opinions on, and, you know, uh, in an effort to have folks not talk about the Green Belt, but instead talk about pronouns in schools.
0: You spoke with a number of individuals, including the executive director of Pride Toronto. What did Kojo Modeste have to say?
5: Yeah, uh, Kojo Modeste was um pretty fired up if I'm being quite honest including saying this is why you know we need to have more candidates uh who are LGBTQ plus uh run for office and that uh you know if the if the premier and minister of education end up going down this route they are not considered allies they should not be anywhere near a pride event they should not be coming to anything uh, Pride Toronto, anything related to any, uh, you know, thing with the LGBTQ plus community. So some pretty strong and harsh words uh, from Kojima uh in, in that case. But just saying that he can clearly see that this is politics being played and politics with a marginalized community that has received a lot of hate over the last 18 months. Uh, some from groups that are on the right wing, just tr- trying to target them for existing and uh, he sees this as kind of pandering to that crowd.
0: The uh, the channel changing from uh, Premier Ford, uh, you know, is, is really being met with another bump in the road because new this morning from Queen's Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello, as well as online journalist Isaac Callen, uh, Global News obtaining 2018 mandate letters from the Premier to his cabinet ministers demanding a high level of ethical standards. Yet here's Mr. Ford wanting the highest ethical standards but he's not sticking to them himself i personally don't see this greenbelt issue dying on the vine anytime soon what's your sense
5: yeah um you know first of all isaac and colin are incredible at what they do uh, anytime i'm out in the field and i get to go to any of these green belt protests or just talk with different people uh, in government or folks who have held high, higher positions they keep saying the same thing which is just you know this really matters to ontarians I'm from BC. I moved to uh you know Ontario about 6 years ago. Lived on and off. And I never really understood the green belt until the last like 2 years or so. And especially the last year, you really start to understand why this matters so much and how much Ontarians really care about it. So you might get people from other parts of the country country weighing in saying, you know, just build the housing, build the housing, but to Ontarians, this really feels like a sign of disrespect because it was uh Consistently brought up that we won't develop this, we won't develop this, we won't develop this, we won't won't have scandals like the like the premier said in those in those mandate letters, which he fought to keep secret. You know, they went all the way to the Supreme Court, if I'm correct, Mm -hmm. Um, and now uh, they're embroiled in this scandal where a chief of a chief of staff is gone, a housing minister is gone, and we have another housing minister who has had to hold successive news conferences in days to kind of go back and correct the record and say change what he had said. So, uh, yeah, it seems to be a lot of – it seems from a lot of other people that they might have stepped in it, and they're at a point now where it's too too hard to uh, course correct, so it seems like they're just kind of going to go either down with the ship, they're going to stay here, or hope that – you know, uh, Ontarians really, really forget about this and they get embroiled in, you know, their kids' school, their winter's coming up, all these different things. But um, from my perspective and from what I've seen is that this is something that people aren't going to be quiet about for a very long time.
0: Agreed. The damage control by the Ford government is not working, clearly. Amar Khan, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the day. Thanks. And Khan, national online journalist with Global News.
1: You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: Let's focus in on what happened this weekend in Quebec City, because the Federal Conservative Party held a three-day policy convention in which leader Pierre Polyev spoke to party supporters on Friday.
6: We should create more of what cash buys. Grow more food. Build more homes and produce more resources right here in Canada. Bring it home.
0: David Aiken is chief political correspondent with Global News and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Mr. Akin, good morning. How are you today?
6: I'm very good, thanks. Yeah, it was a busy weekend. I'll tell you, the the conservatives were in a good mood. Um, you know, they, they really liked their leaders. 70% voted for them. But even more than that, I mean, you've seen the polls in the last month. Pick your pollster. Tories are up over the liberals, six, seven, eight, nine points. Uh, it's a pretty significant lead. And even more so, and this is probably more important for a party trying to uh, you know, find more supporters and win an election, they are raising more money than all other parties combined, more than the liberals and Democrats, Blackie, McLaughlin, Greens combined. They've been setting record fundraising quarters under Poiliev. So, uh, yeah, they were in a great mood. And what they did on the weekend was, okay, We've got the money, we've got the, the polls, and, and they wanted to now sit down and start picking some policy priorities.
0: So what were your takeaways from this three-day convention? What did conservatives come up with?
6: Well, uh, they, they sort of, like any policy convention, I've been covering them for, for 20 years. Um, the, the local uh, electoral district associations, you know, come up with what they'd like to see in a platform. So I think there was something like 200 submissions. They, then there's a committee that whittles down those submissions to about 60. So the convention opened up on on uh, on Friday with 60 policy proposals on defense, Arctic security, uh, NATO. Um, we're we're going to talk about some that that passed on gender affirming care for young people, medically assisted uh, dying, and so on. I mean, soup to nuts in terms of policies. So that's they start with 60. And then they have spend they spend the weekend in workshops uh, debating these 60 and they whittle those 60 down to 30. And it was uh, and then those all get voted on on this on the Saturday. The process is important because this is grassroots and and this party very much, quote, believes in the grassroots. And so uh, then they all voted on them on uh, on Saturday. Twenty nine of the 30 passed. So what were some of the things that passed? Um Some very sophisticated, to my my view anyways, climate and energy policies and statements. There was uh, four or five motions on these uh, sorts of things uh, brought forward by um, electoral district associations in Alberta, in Ontario, all over the place. Um, It's worth considering. Obviously, they don't want to tax our way to being green, but they all recognize the issue of climate change. Something needs to be done about it, and conservatives try to come up with some practical solutions on that. I mentioned uh, Arctic security and uh, stronger ties with NATO. Conservatives saying we'll try to get to that 2% of defense funding. Um, so uh, those, those I thought were uh, very interesting. Uh, really want to beef up rail in- infrastructure, particularly passenger rail infrastructure uh, in this country to get our goods uh, going around. I mentioned those uh, sort of healthcare care issues. Uh, the party did say we ought to ban gender-affirming medical treatment for those who are under the age of 18. Also, the, the federal government ought to ban access to MAID, medically-assisted dying, also for those under 18, but also for those with uh, mental illnesses. Those, those last two seem to get a little more headlines, but it was quite a diverse range of uh, policy proposals that the that the party uh, came up with. But here's the really important thing. Under the rules for the Conservative Party of Canada, it's the leader that has the last word on what goes in the platform. So Pierre Pollier he can, he can put in the platform things that were rejected at the uh, convention, or he can ignore some of the platforms that were passed with the rejection. And some of the, I mentioned this party thinks grassroots stuff is important, so some of the grassroots in the party thought, this is too much power for the leader. The leader ought to listen to what the grassroots said. So they tried to get a motion passed to alter the Constitution, to make the leader put stuff in the platform that the convention passes, but that motion failed. And again, I go back to what I said before. This party is quite united behind the leader, Pierre Polyev. He's very popular. And so at the end of the day, uh, he's got 29 policy proposals and we're going to have to see which ones actually end up in the conservative platform. It's all up to Paul Yen.
0: Very interesting. we got 90 more seconds with David Aiken Chief Political Correspondent, Global News, covering the policy convention that the federal conservatives held over the weekend in Quebec City. I just want to hone in on the climate energy policy plan of this, release the ideas put forth at the convention, because just over the weekend, Stephen Gilbo uh, from the Liberal Party tweeted that, uh, they, you know, the conservatives still do not have a climate Plan. How important is it that Mr. Polyev establishes something?
6: Yeah, and of course, let's let's uh, you know shake out the chaff of politics here. The Conservatives do have a climate plan. They've had one for the last two elections, but it's not the same climate plan as the Liberal Party's climate plan. Um, I think that's important to point out. And to the degree that Canadians think it's very important that all parties have a credible plan on climate, you could say that maybe the Canadians looked at the Conservative plan and didn't think perhaps it was as credible. So I think it 's mostly about a, a credibility issue with the conservatives they, they just can 't i mean obviously you 've heard paul you have acts the tax acts the tax that 's that the liberals say is the conservative plan but in fact, what conservatives talked about was lots of investment in high technology um, to displace um, carbon producing energy um, lots of ways that Canada, can the federal government can invest in innovation to reduce uh uh, high tech etc and there was a debate there was a lot of conservatives said no we're not doing that it's a waste of money but the the, the convention came through on it so um i I do think i mean i'm looking at the last two elections uh, climate and environment has been one of the top three issues that many swing voters vote on i think right now affordability is certainly the number one issue there's no question about that but but help but it's it's health affordability and in the last two elections. It's been climate change. So uh, the conservatives know this, and uh, and they want to be as credible as they can on that particular policy.
0: David Inkin with us here on GMH on 900 CHML. Thank you for your time. Enjoy the day.
6: Yeah, no problem. Cheers.
0: David Aiken is the Chief Political Cor- Correspondent with Global News, taking in the Federal Conservative Party Policy Convention in Quebec City over the
1: weekend. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML.
0: New documentary premiering at tip looks at Nickelback and their legacy. It's called Hate to Love Nickelback. It premiered Friday at the 48th Toronto International Film Festival.
1: In the 2000s, there wasn't a band on the planet that got more radio airplay than Nickelback. All of that exposure triggered a reaction. Why does everybody hate Nickelback? Nickelback, Bad, Nickel
3: Hack, Nickel Bomb, Nickel Creed.
1: Nobody picks up a guitar to be in the most hated band in the world.
6: They were. Part of cancel culture before we had a name for it. They became the most hated
4: band in music. We try and laugh it off. You can can laugh off about 90% of it. and Some of it, it hurts.
0: It looks like a great one again. Hate to love Nickelback. Also the focus of our Twitter poll question of the day. Are you a fan of the legendary Canadian rock band? Yes, no, or they're okay. Right now, 42% of you are saying no. 37 and a half say they're okay. Uh, 21% say yes. Have your say on our Twitter or X feed at AM 900 CHML. Send me a text at 905-645-3221. Well, let's ask a music expert. He's a publicist. He's a music commentator. And he's Eric Halper. And he joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Eric, good morning. How are
7: you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Why do we hate to love Nickelback? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's funny. You know, back in the... I'm going to say early 2000s, when they were signed to their record label, Roadrunner Records. Roadrunner was primarily a hard rock, heavy metal label. And when the label did well it wasn't necessarily selling a lot of albums certainly not in the millions of copies that most labels dream of doing when you know they start but once they signed Nickelback and Nickelback started to sell those millions and millions and millions of albums around the world and selling out the record label decided to maybe take a little bit more money away from the hard rock and metal bands that those audiences loved and put it into Nickelback. And most businesses would do it. You would put your money where things are selling rather than things that are not. And that really upset a lot of hard rock and classic rock and metal fans. And that's seemingly where this all started. Um, But, you know, the reasons why I think people always lean back on when it comes to the hatred of Nickelback, that the fact that they, they've they got a lot of formula in their songs, their uninspired lyrics. Well, the same thing could be said for something like ACDC, mm-hmm. um, the radio overexposure that every station was playing a Nickelback song all the time. You know, same could be said for Led Zeppelin or the Beatles or Elton John, but we still love them. So I think that it just really comes down to, you know, maybe chad's hair um (laughs) you know maybe the the raspy singing voice that just doesn't gel with a lot of people um maybe the fact that they're singing about partying too much but like you know acdc songs are all about you know relationships and the carnal part of that but i don't know i mean they're the nicest kindest people that you'll ever want to meet and the hatred is just, I mean, just like they said, it. Nobody joined the band to be the most hated band in the world, and it seemed to affect them a lot more than what they were leading on.
0: It it seems fascinating that this hatred has lasted all this time, and it really has not subsided. It
7: it's phenomenal. Yeah, especially when you know when you bring up your poll that you're doing. I you know the twenty one percent of people who do like Nickelback, they're the ones that are going out to the shows. They're the ones that for 13 consecutive world tours have sold out every single ticket that this band has put on sale um, since probably 2004. It, it, the earliest that I can go back on and, and see an actual world tour that really started to sell out. The other people, though, are, are very vocal in not liking them, which is... Probably, I think if you were to put out that poll to everybody with every band, I'm sure that those numbers would be the exact same. Mm-hmm. Even though that, you know, we can, you know, you and I have talked about Taylor Swift, you know, reaching a billion dollars worth of grosses and ticket sales for her current tour. Um, there's still, you know, 62 you know billion billion out there for people who don't want to go and see her. So, um, you know, there might be just as many people that don't like Taylor Swift as They do like her, but it just she's never turned into a meme. You know, she's yes, never turned yeah. into a mocking reference um, that's so publicly ganged up on. You know, you, you I'm sure you you remember there was a time when there was a poll that was taken, or it wasn't a poll. It was a um um it was one of those um you know sign your name and and you know then they were going to send all of these names to the NFL to make them not play the super bowl when it was playing when it was right. held in Detroit um and there there was like a million people that signed it and i'm like oh, I, a million people is is wild to me that somebody that that many people would actually um uh publicly go and say that they hate something online. and But that kind of fuels everything. That's what the whole internet is for, is giving a voice to people so they can actually fuel their own negative perception of yeah. something.
0: Eric Alper is a publicist and music commentator and joining us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHMLs who talk about Nickelback and the new documentary that premiered at TIFF on Friday, Hate to Love Nickelback. I haven't seen it. I'm not sure if you have either, but do you think something like
7: this might turn the tide in their favor? I don't know. You know they—they they want to. They're—they're they're really tired. I think of of hearing people say really dumb stuff to them, and in fact, and it, it affects them all. All the time, all day long. In fact, there's a scene in the film that I have seen where um, people are rolling down their car windows shouting and swearing at them as they drove by as they're walking down the street, like not even not even playing. Um, So it's they say that they want to change the narrative. I get why they're doing it. It it really allows their fan base to close ranks a little bit and say, yes, this is the band that we love. Let's all go watch this. And it makes us stronger, but it also makes the other side a lot stronger too. So it's going to be really interesting to watch this film and see later on if it does change the band's perception and reception of of who they are. Um, I don't think people feel sorry for musicians, yeah. I, that's the one thing that I don't think it's going to change is I I, mean, I don't think people are going to see the film and say, oh, you know, I think I've treated them really badly in the past, so I'm not going to anymore because I think those people would never see this film in the first place.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. Uh, I don't think that the needle is going to be moved that much. Eric, uh, as always, thanks for your time this morning.
7: Thank you so much for having me, man. We'll
0: talk soon. You got it. Eric Alper, publicist and music commentator. And for the record, I am a Nickelback fan, just like... Deadpool. I've had
7: it with all this Nickelback hating,
1: right? You think that makes you cool with the cool kids in school, Fred? No, it just makes me right. It doesn't. They're overproduced,
3: formulaic ear garbage.
1: Oh, really? You know who might disagree with that? Facts. 50 million albums worldwide, 11th best-selling musical
4: act of all time, Billboard's most successful rock group of the last decade, six Grammy nominations, 12 Juno Awards, those count, six Billboard Music Awards, two American Music Awards, one People's Choice Award,
0: Canadian, and a partridge in a